I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you have ever prayed for a loved one to be saved, and you've prayed for them for a long time, and you've grieved and mourned over their unbelief, then to a certain extent you can feel the heart of Paul in Romans 9, 1 through 5. Because in Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul's heart is anguished. His heart is breaking for his own people, for the Israelite people. His heart is breaking for them because, by and large, they have rejected their Messiah. They've rejected Jesus of Nazareth. They did not believe that he was their Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And Paul knows that in rejecting Jesus as their Savior, rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, that they are inviting for themselves the condemnation of God. And his heart is broken for that. His heart is so broken that he is willing to offer himself up in exchange for them. He said in verse 3, if I, would, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he's concerned for them. He's so concerned that, that he wishes, if it were possible, and of course it's not, that he could give himself up to eternal condemnation so that his Israelite people could be saved. But last week we saw that Paul is not the one who can really substitute himself in that way. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the one who has been cursed so that the Israelite people might be saved. And so Paul is concerned for them. He's aching for them. He wants them to believe and to be saved But this is not just a personal concern of Paul. It's a personal concern, and it's a very heavy personal concern. But for Paul, and and especially for his purposes in this section of Romans, in Romans 9 through 11, his, his concern is really theological. And that is, if the Israelite people... God's elect people, right? The the Israelite people were God's chosen nation. They were the ones who were set apart from all the other nations in the world. God came to Abraham and Abraham alone and said, I am going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And so God made these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. He entered into covenants with them. He entered into a covenant with the Israelite people as a nation on Mount Sinai. That he would be their God and they would be his people. But now, what's going to happen to the faithfulness of God? What's going to happen to the word of God? To these promises of God if a vast majority of the Jewish people do not believe and are condemned. Because one thing is absolutely sure that Paul believes, and that he believes that Jesus is the only way. He believes that Jesus is the only way to God. He believes in John fourteen six, 
When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And and he's already told us that in the book of Romans, back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, when he said, a true Jew is not one who is just one outwardly, but one who is one inwardly. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, that is one who is truly a Jew. So Paul understands that salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. But what does that say about the Word of God, the faithfulness of God? And that's really what's at issue in this portion of Romans 9. I want to read a few verses, verses 6 through 9 this morning. Really, the the argument that Paul's making here runs all the way through verse 13, but I want to break this up into two parts. Look at verses 6 through 9 this morning and then verses 10 through 13 the next time that I preach from Romans because there's just so much involved in what Paul is saying here that I don't want to fly over it too quickly. And so this morning I want us to look at verses 6 through 9. So in light of the vast unbelief of the Israelite people, he says in verse number six, it is not as though God's word had failed. That's the primary issue for Paul. God's word has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants Are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Let's bow in prayer together. Father God, we pray that today you would help us to understand your word. Help us to understand what your servant Paul is teaching us, how this helps us to understand more of who you are, more of your character. May it lead us to a greater confidence in your faithfulness and in the certainty of your word. Help this time together, Lord, today to help us to understand better your ways, the way that you are working out your purposes in the world, the way that you are accomplishing your grand plan of salvation. May this lead us to worship. May this lead us to faith. May this lead us to obedience. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The first thing that I want us to think about this morning is an unexpected turn of events. An unexpected turn of events. And what I mean by that is what is happening in Paul's day that is creating this issue in his mind, not only his personal concern, but also the theological concern that is attached with it, The the issue that is causing this is an unexpected turn of events, namely that in Paul's day, Gentiles are being saved at a pretty high rate. Whereas the Jews 
historically God's people are not being saved at a very high rate. Now, in, in nothing that I'm saying today is it indicating that there were not Jews who were saved. Clearly there were, right? Paul is one of them. All of the original disciples of Christ were Jewish people. So the, the, the birth of the church started in Jerusalem. And there were thousands who were converted on the day of Pentecost. So the church started in Jerusalem, and it's working its way outward. So there were many, many Jews who were being saved. But in terms of percentage, in terms of ratio, we might say that the number of Jews who were being saved and believing in Jesus as their Savior was much smaller than the number of Jews who were not believing. There were a great number of Israelite people who were not believing in Jesus. Whereas Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is going around different places in the Roman world. And he's going to Antioch and to Philippi and Ephesus and, and to Colossae and Thessalonica. And, and he's seeing fruit everywhere. And much of that fruit that he's seeing is Gentile fruit. Now, Paul did not ignore the Jewish people when he went to these cities. There were Jewish populations in all of these Roman cities where Paul went to. And so he would go to the synagogues. We know from the book of Acts that, that when he would show up at one of these cities, one of the first things he would do is go to the synagogue. And he would declare from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, and seek to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so Paul preached to the Jews, and he went to the synagogues. But oftentimes, in, you can read about it in the book of Acts, that when he did, he was run out of town. Or he was thrown out and stoned. He was rejected in that message. But by and large, he was much more successful, saw much more gospel fruit in the Gentile world. And so that's really kind of an unexpected turn of events, isn't it? Because when you think about it from an Old Testament viewpoint, God's focus was on Israel. And there were relatively few Gentiles who were being saved and becoming proselytes and coming into the people of God. You have your examples of that in the Old Testament. You have Rahab and you have Ruth and you have other Gentiles who came into the people of God and were saved. But by and large, it seems like the ratio was very high, highly Israelites and a few Gentiles. But now it seems like it's the reverse. That many, many more Gentiles are being saved, whereas many Jews are, are rejecting the Messiah. And so that, that's creating a, a problem, uh, a theological issue that Paul needs to address. And one of the things I just want to mention here is that really there's a sense in which that this was anticipated, even in the time of Jesus, that this would happen. Even while Jesus was ministering, who was Jesus rejected by? Jesus was rejected by, by and large, the Jewish people. Certainly the chief priests and the scribes and the rabbis and, and the, the leaders of Israel, they rejected him. A great number of people at that time rejected Jesus. And Jesus spoke to that. At one point, I just want to quote from Luke chapter 13 for a moment. 
This is in Luke chapter 13. And, and this is during the ministry of Jesus. And he is anticipating what the, this problem that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9. So Luke 13 verse 22 says, Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught us in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. Now, I'm going to read it further in just a moment. But just to pause, Jesus is saying here that not everyone's going to be saved, right? And, and who is he saying this to? He's saying this to Jews, And he's encouraging these Jewish people, these Israelite people, find the narrow gate. Find the narrow gate. Narrow because a few will find it versus the broad gate, the broad way that many people will travel. So not everyone's going to be saved. And now listen to what he says specifically about the Jewish people. Verse 28. There will be weeping there. And gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. That's a pretty powerful statement that Jesus is making. Now notice, he is making this statement to Jewish people, to Israelite people, perhaps even Pharisees and religious leaders in the crowd. And he's saying, not all of you are going to be in the kingdom of God. That overturned a a very common assumption in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, that if you are a Jew, if you are a descendant of Abraham, then you will be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, many of you will be on the outside looking in. But, verse 29 of Luke, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. It's pretty significant what he's saying there is, you Jews, there will be some of you who are thrown out and not in the kingdom, but there will be many from north and south and east and west. Who's that? Gentiles. Who will be in the kingdom of God, eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus anticipated the very situation that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9, that there are Jews who are rejecting Jesus, but many, many Gentiles who are accepting him and are coming into the kingdom of God. So in in some ways, it's an unexpected turn of events, but it was very much seen as coming in God's plan. And Jesus saw it. And now Paul is teaching us what it means. This has a, a problem. 
there's a problem that, that this raises, and that problem is the problem of God's faithfulness. So if, if many, many Jews are not being saved, what does that say about the faithfulness of God? Has God reneged on his word? What's the use of all of these benefits that Paul has just listed out in Romans 9, verses 4, through 6, 4, 4 and 5? He says, these people, the Israelite people, they have the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the human ancestry of the Messiah. So he lists out all of these benefits. And there might be someone who would say, Paul, what's the, what's the use of having all of these benefits if they're not going to be saved? Has God failed? Has God's program for Israel failed? Has his eternal plan failed? Are his promises broken? Really, he's asking, is God trustworthy? Now, I just want us to stop there and think about the fact that this issue that Paul's talking about here it matters for us. This matters for us. This is, so when we address this issue, this is not just an Old Testament Israel of what God's doing with Israel. Because what Paul is wrestling with here is something more core to the heart of who God is, and that is his faithfulness and his keeping his word. That's important, not just for the Jews, but it's also important for us as Gentiles, isn't it? Why? Because Paul has just finished in Romans chapter 8 telling us that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God. Well, that's a promise, isn't it? So we want to know for Gentiles, for us, we want to know that that promise is secure. We want to know that when that promise is made, that God is faithful to his word that every single one of his people will be with him in his eternal kingdom. And there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from him. So this is a core issue for us as well. Is God faithful? And Paul affirms in very strong terms, God's word has not failed. God's word, his promises, all of these things that he promised to the Israelite people that he just listed out in verses 4 and 5. God's word, his promises, his covenants, they have not failed. Well, how is that so? How is God's word not failed? If, if God made promises to the Israelite people, but now the Israelite people are in danger of being eternally lost, how does that not put in jeopardy the faithfulness of God? Here's Paul's solution. Not everyone who is Israel is Israel. Not everyone who is Israel, is Israel. That's literally what he says. And, and, and so you ask, Paul, what are you saying here? What are you, what are you talking about? 
Are, are you playing word games here, Paul? Not, how can Israel not be Israel? Here's what he's saying. Not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is a child of Abraham. And Paul's making a very careful distinction here that he wants us to see. There is such a thing as a physical descendant of Abraham, but then there is a spiritual child of Abraham. And not everyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham is a spiritual child of Abraham. In other words, just like what he was saying back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the one who is truly a Jew is not the one who is just one outwardly, but the one who is one inwardly, who doesn't just have the outward circumcision, but who has the inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. That is the true Israelite. And in that context in Romans chapter 3 Paul asks this question that directly relates to what we're talking about here does the unfaithfulness or the unbelief of people nullify the faithfulness of God and Paul said no absolutely not let God be true and every person a liar, right? So, in other words, what Paul is teaching us here is God's promises, God's covenants, they are true, they are effectual, they are guaranteed, and God's word is not failing because people are unbelieving. Because there is, and he's going to show us, there has always been, and Israel within Israel. Always. So in other words, going all the way back to the very beginning of God's choice of Abraham and the Israelite people, going all the way back to the beginning, there has, in a sense, been a twofold people. There has been an external people, a nation, physical lineage, external marks of being a part of that people. And there have been many, many blessings that those people have experienced by being a part of that larger group, that external, physical, national, ethnic group of people. But just being a part of that ethnic, national group of people is not a guarantee that you are spiritually one of God's children. And just, just think about it this way. Can, can someone in the Old Testament, just, just a generic person in the Old Testament, they're a part of God's people externally. They were born in, as a Jew. They were circumcised on the eighth day. They, they have the law of God. They're they're, they're a part of the external people of God. But they grow up, and their whole life is characterized by the worship of Baal, offering false sacrifices to false gods, mistreating their neighbor, 
defrauding one another, cheating one another, covetous, greedy, deceptive. By the way, those are all things that the prophets accuse Israel of in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. False worship, mistreating one another. Is that person going to be in heaven one day? Paul is saying, he's teaching us here, no. That's never been what this is all about. It's never been about God is going to guarantee that every single person who is born into this physical family of Abraham is going to be in the eternal kingdom of God. That was never God's purpose. That was never God's plan. From the very beginning, there have been, there has been an Israel and an Israel. And there has been a spiritual Israel, a saved Israel, an elect Israel inside the, the larger physical ethnic people of Israel. And that's what he's saying here. So you have the descendants physically, but then you have the children spiritually. And so the solution to the problem of God's faithfulness is a proper understanding of God's ways of grace. God's word has not failed. A proper understanding of God's ways of grace helps us to understand what's really going on. Not all who are Israel are Israel. As one commentator says, it is grace, not race. It is grace, not race. It doesn't matter if you're born into Abraham's family. What matters is if you're born again. And Paul teaches us elsewhere that even those who are Gentiles can be regarded as children of Abraham, spiritually. And not every child, not every descendant physically of Abraham is going to be regarded as a child of Abraham, spiritually. And here's how he illustrates it. Here's his first illustration. He says, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. What is this? What's the context of these Old Testament quotes? The context of these Old Testament quotes is Abraham's wrestling with how is the Lord going to fulfill his promise to me when I do not yet have a child. And there came a point when Abraham and Sarah tried to, quote unquote, fix the problem by Sarah's suggestion that Abraham have a son with Hagar, their servant. And he did have a son. His name was Ishmael, right? But what did God tell Abraham? That one is not the son of promise. He's a physical son of Abraham, and I'm going to bless him. I'm going to bless Ishmael, and he's going to become a great people. He's going to be a father of many nations. 
but he is not the son of promise. In other words, Abraham, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust my word. And that's exactly what's at issue for Paul in here in Romans 9. You've got to trust the word of God, that God is going to work it out in accordance with his will, in his providence, not in the way that we expect. And so God told Abraham and Sarah, it is through the son that Sarah will bear you that you will have a son, and he will be the son of promise. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's the line through whom the promised seed will go. Why is this? How does this illustrate Paul's point? Because you have two descendants of Abraham, right? One of them is chosen and the other one is not. One of them is the one through whom God will bless. One of them is the one through whom God will accomplish his promise. The other one is not. In other words, you have an Israel within Israel from the very beginning. You have an Ishmael and you have an Isaac. And so it's not just about physical lineage from Abraham. And Ishmael is an example of that. It's about the promise of God. It's about the grace of God. It's about the ways that God accomplishes his purposes in the world apart from human effort, apart from what we can do, apart from what we can see as human beings, apart from what we can perceive. It is God working out his inscrutable purposes in the world in accordance with his grace. That's what Paul wants these people to understand, is that being a Jew physically doesn't guarantee you anything. What matters is, are you a beneficiary of the grace of God? That's what matters. And if you are a beneficiary of the grace of God, his word cannot fail. And Romans 8, 38 and 39 is absolutely unassailably true. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God. So, God is faithful. And the unfaithfulness or the unbelief of people does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Because God is working out his purposes in ways that we can't always see or understand. But God's purposes will not fail. In other words, God is a God who can be trusted. His word can be counted on. His promises will be fulfilled. His covenants honored. God is a God who can be trusted. And the way that God operates in the world is not through physical descent, but by grace. Now, as I close, let me just ask this question. Because this seems to me to be one of the, the most direct applications of what Paul is saying here to us as a Christian church today. On what are you basing your identity 
as a Christian? On what are you basing your identity as a Christian? Because for the Jewish people, they might say, well, I was born into the tribe of Judah. Or I was circumcised on the eighth day. Or I've, I've memorized parts of the Torah. You know, I, I'm, I'm a Pharisee. Whatever it is, they, they would tend to identify themselves as a people of God by these external things. On what are you basing your identity as a Christian? Is it because you were born into a Christian family? Is it because your father or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother were Christians? Is that why you consider yourself a Christian? Is it because you were baptized, perhaps young as a child? Is it because of of the fact that you live in America? Is it because of the fact that you live in the South, in Alabama? There's a lot of people in, in the South, in Alabama, especially especially small-town Alabama, they, they see themselves as Christians. It's, it's, it's like a cultural thing. But are you really a Christian? Or are you just relying on external things? That's not how God works. God doesn't save you because your mother or your father or your grandfather or grandmother were Christians. God saves by grace and by grace alone. So my prayer is that you're not basing your identity as a Christian on on any family consideration or, or religious ritual consideration or what culture or place you were born into, but that you're basing your identity as a Christian on Christ. And on Christ alone. And on what he has done for you by the grace of God. So let God be true. His word is true. And may we all in this room be beneficiaries of the saving grace of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, just want to praise you and thank you that you are the faithful God that your word stands and your promises can be relied on. Lord, help us to see and understand that the way that you work, the way that you accomplish your saving purposes, it's not always easy to see. It's not always easy to pinpoint and, and to see them in external ways. As your word says, the spirit blows where he wants to blow. You can hear the sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. Lord, help us to remember that your grace works in ways that we can't always expect or anticipate. Lord, I pray that there's no one here who is placing their trust in their identity as a Christian, in their Christian family, or in any religious ritual or in in their birth. But Lord, I pray that they would be placing their faith wholly and fully in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, may your grace fall on us today. Save your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.